Tonight, we're going to be doing something that's probably the most different of this series of lessons because what I'm going to do tonight is I'm, I'm basically going to deal with one chapter, whereas in the, in the past lessons that we've done, I've, we've dealt more with a theme each week, sort of, or an idea, you know, that was all gathered together. But tonight, we're going to look at the 15th chapter of Mark, and we're going to almost do a verse-by-verse study. Um, I, I w- but before we get into that, I want to give you just a couple of preparatory, preparatory words from the 14th chapter, and then we're gonna, I'm going to give you 11 points from Mark 15. And I know some of you are like, 11 points, we're going to be here forever, but I, it's going to go quickly. I know it sounds like a lot, but <coughs> excuse me. So turn to Mark 14, that's where we're going to start, and I want to look at a couple of brief insights that lead us into the moment of the actual crucifixion, because tonight we're looking at Jesus on the cross. Two weeks from tonight, we'll be looking at the resurrection. Um, So Mark chapter 14, we'll start reading in verse 50. Then everyone deserted him and fled. Now that's that's really important right there. It it means that Jesus from this event onward is alone. Someone once said that the loneliest thing in the world is to die and the loneliest death is to die alone. Jesus is forsaken by his friends and associates, the disciples have gone. Verse 51. And a young man followed him. Now, I'll say this, we do not know, but it is held by many scholars. It's traditionally embraced that this young man that's, that's described here is the writer of the gospel, uh, which we now read, John Mark, and that he's now speaking of himself. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. In other words, they tried to grab him, they grabbed his clothing, and he just slipped out of that and ran away naked. Now, there are two things I want you to to, uh, consider in that. Excuse me, just a moment. (coughs) Got a little tickle right there. The first is uh, that this is Passover time. And when this is going on, and this, if this young man had gone through the ceremonial cleansing, he would have draped a, a, a linen cloth about his body. And linen is a, is a symbol of purity and holiness throughout Scripture. And so this is an indicator that he has gone through the ritual of cleansing, and then he has draped his naked body with nothing between him and the linen, nothing between him and the holiness that he is searching for. And, and, and it serves as a symbol of holiness through this Passover evening and on into the next day, the Sabbath. However, at the moment of commitment, in the moment when the rubber meets the road, so to speak, he proves frail and he runs away naked. And it's, it's an interesting moment that his religious holiness is stripped away. And, and his physically naked flesh reveals the flesh of him that was always there under the surface all the time. Just a little picture of some, something that happens with us. And if you take away the religious holiness, sometimes with people who play the games, and then they find what's going on underneath. Now, none of this is really the teaching for tonight, but I just want you to get a sense of what's going on. So Jesus is alone. He's, he's captured and he's taken to the chief priest and the assembled Sanhedrin. Peter denies him. We know all of that. Then on on to verse 62 of Mark 14, and Jesus said, I am. Now in verse 61, they asked Jesus, are you the Christ, the son of the the blessed? And Jesus answered, I am. And the answer in Hebrew is the phrase Yahweh. 
So that's what it, the literal Jehovah God, that's the literal translation. In Hebrew, it would be very easy to understand. They would have been very quick to understand what he was saying. They said, are you, are you the Christ of God? And he says, no, I am God. I am. So let's read on. Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witness do we need? You see, it's, it's the combination that Jesus said he was going to be coming in the clouds of heaven. And also the fact that he started that whole statement by saying the same phrase where he says, where, where, where God spoke out of the bush to Abraham when he said, I am that I am. He used that same phrase when, that Jesus, Jesus did when he said, I am. So, so the chief priest says, the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witness do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him, which, by the way, is not scriptural, not lawful under Jewish law. And, and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, prophesy. Now they, they slapped him, which is the ancient symbol for heresy. So by doing that, they are denouncing him as a heretic by slapping him. You remember later on, uh, Paul the Apostle appears before this very same Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. And the high priest at one moment in time commanded someone near Paul, smite, smite him, hit him, slap him. And, and what did Paul respond? Well, Paul, you know, he was such a shy and demure kind of guy. Uh, he said, God will smite you, you whitewashed tomb. You know, so he was just real quiet like that. But th this is the... Horrifying scene now, the, the actual downturn, the, the last moment as Jesus is about to be crucified. So now, now let's move into Mark 15. This is where we're going to spend our time tonight. Let's read verses 1 through 5. And, and we're, we're, there's a lot of information I'm going to give you tonight. Um, and some, a lot of it we're going to read a little bit and then talk and then we'll just follow along with me. Mark, Mark, 12, excuse me, Mark 15 verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he, Jesus, answered him, you have said so, or you said it, brother. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now, there are just a few things in this that we need to see. First of all, notice that it says, the very beginning, it says, as soon as it was morning. Now, you may not realize it, but we already have an issue. What morning? What morning was this? And I'm, I'm just going to say, I'm not going to go to war with anybody over that has their own theory about all of this. You can take the four gospel accounts and weave them together and come up with all kinds of theories about when Jesus was arrested and when he was crucified and how long he was in the grave and when he arose and all those things. There are, there are all kinds of ways that people deal with this. And I'm not going to argue with anybody. I'm just going to tell you what seems to be apparent to me. Uh, and this is not some big theological point, but, but please notice that it says in the morning. So we know for sure, we know that Jesus has been in some kind of incarceration through the night. He was arrested, you'll remember, following the evening meal on the night before, whatever, whatever night that was, and we'll come to that answer, I think, in a few minutes. Whatever night that was that, that he was arrested, he was arrested soon after the evening meal in the Garden of Gethsemane over on the Mount of Olives. Then he's taken before the Sanhedrin. Then he is sentenced to death, as it were, but... The, the, the reason I say as it were is because the Sanhedrin had no power to execute him. 
the Romans, the ruling power, they reserved the power of life and death only for themselves. Therefore, in order to carry out this sentence of death, the, they had, Jesus had to be kept in custody overnight. Now, if you were to go to Jerusalem today at the side of, of, of Caiaphas' house, there's, there is a, uh, there's a, a Catholic, small Catholic church there that's called the Church of St. Peter in, in Galicantu. Now, that just means uh, that, uh, where the cock crows, the Church of St. Peter where the cock crows. And uh, underneath that church, there's sort of a, sort of a small jail. It, it was been, it's built on the site of Caiaphas' house. His house is long gone, but this church has been built in there. And it was in this jail where Christ would have been kept through, through that night following the kangaroo court that went on late during the previous night. And, and, and I, I just want to say this. When, when I use the word jail, I use that. I'm being very generous for that, to use that as a word. Because we think of jail, you know, with nice bed and, you know, all kinds. Of, it's not, nothing like that at all. It, it, it looks like a, a carved out stone cistern where a bit prisoner could be kept briefly overnight or for maybe a few nights. And he would be lowered down by a rope into the pit. And as it were, which was dug under the basement of Caiaphas, the high priest's house. You, you can go over there and see it today. You can, you can, they've built stairways. You can go down and you can go down into the very room where Jesus would have been kept overnight. And the next morning comes and they take Jesus before Pontius Pilate. Now, what morning is that? If you'll notice, please, verse 42. We haven't read it yet, but we'll, we'll be jumping back and forth a little bit. It says, and when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath... In, in the Jewish uh, calendar, you, you, one of the things we, we get confused on is because we think of day to day, we go from midnight to midnight. But the Jewish calendar, the way their days work is completely different. Their day starts, it, it's based basically on the, uh, the story of the creation because the creation, it, it, it says, uh, and the night and the day were, were the first day. So in the Jewish calendar, day starts around six o'clock in the evening. Now it is six o'clock in the evening now, but back then it started at sundown. And, and so the, the Sabbath would start on Friday evening at sundown, and would, which would be around 6 p.m., and would end on Saturday evening at sundown. And that's where it gets confusing for us when we start thinking about days because they don't all line up exactly the same. And we're told that the day of, of these events, these, these things that are happening, the day of Jesus' crucifixion was the day of preparation for the Sabbath. And that means they, they have to do all of their daily chores, everything that they, you know, that they, because there's things that have to be done every single day, right? And especially in a, when you're living in that type of a culture, there's no refrigerator. So you've got, a, you've got a lot of food prep, a lot of things you have to do every single day. Well, everything that you would do normally on every single day they had to do extra on Friday to get ready because they couldn't do it on Saturday. They couldn't do it from Friday at sundown to Saturday at sundown because that day is the Sabbath. They were forbidden to do those things. So this is the day where they prepare for the Sabbath. So Friday is the day that the people prepare for the Sabbath because at sundown Friday, the Sabbath begins. Therefore, we know that Jesus appears before Pilate Probably at the crack of dawn on Friday morning. And I say that because in third world countries, the day starts at dawn. 
And really, people's days start before then because they got to get up and get ready because, uh, you know, if you're going to be out at the market at dawn, you got to have everything ready to go before then. And so, but dawn or maybe shortly thereafter. So now, now, now just bear in mind that we're, we're going to come back to this whole issue of the third day because we do not reckon time in the same way that the ancient Hebrew did. Therefore, it causes a great deal of confusion. So we'll come back to that in a little bit. But it appears to me that Jesus was engaging in the Passover event on Thursday night with his friends. And you can look at all the Gospels, and it all, it all lines up with a Passover meal. Um, and I, that's important. The reason that's important is because one other interpretation is that, is that uh, these events happened um, before, and that the crucifixion happened the day before Passover, which was a different day. And so there are some people out there who will say, I have a very close friend who, who, who believes this, that the crucifixion happened on Wednesday night because uh, they because of the, they're trying to fit three days and three nights and before Sunday, and uh, but the but the problem with that is that Jesus had a Passover meal and that doesn't take place until the Passover starts, and so that's why I, I think it goes this this direction more, and so uh, uh, he, he's he's he, he, he has this Passover meal with his friends on Thursday night with his, with his friends, and then he, he's arrested late Thursday night, spends Thursday night at Caiaphas' jail, and Friday morning he's in Pontius Pilate's courtyard. So I just want you to get a sense of how telescoped these events are. Everything is taking place literally in, in just in a space of hours, just in a very short period of time. And other people will tell you other theories on that, but I, and I, I said, I'm not going to go to war with, uh, over them uh, with that uh, over these things it's fine with me however it happened it, it that's how it happened the important thing to me is that it did happen that's what's really important now 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 then before Pilate let's skip now to verse 2 to, to Jesus's appearance before Pilate verse 2 says and Pilate asked him are you the king of the Jews now, now what's what's the problem here why does Pilate care if he says he's the king of the Jews or if he's not the king of the Jews well Pilate cares because only Caesar has, in their culture, only Caesar has the right to appoint a king. Now, we in America, we can understand humanism, but we cannot understand idolatry. And you, you must understand that the pagan society of Roman culture uh, understood emperor worship as the combination of state and religion. Uh, that is, the, when you read the book of Revelation, that's the beast that's the, uh, upon which the whore rides in the book of Revelation. False religion riding on the power of the state. It's a combination of false religion and civil worship, the worship of the state. And the emperor worship, emperor worship in the Roman Empire was the perfect combination. So in their mind, Caesar alone has the right to make kings. Now, we say God can make and unmake kings. But you know what? Caesar would not have argued, argued with you over that. God makes and unmakes kings. And he'd say, right, that's right, that's exactly right. And by the way, I'm God. Because the Roman emperor was proclaimed to be a deity. So, so therefore, for a man to announce that he is king of the Jews by divine fiat, by the choice of God, is what? Well, not only is it heresy, but truthfully, Rome really doesn't care about the heresy part of it. I mean, their idea was, if you want to be a god, fine, because there are thousands of them. However, if you want to be a king, you better check with Caesar. And so the issue for Rome is not heresy, it's, it's what? It's, it's sedition, it's rebellion, it's revolution. 
Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, well, you've said so. And you know, in nearly everything that Jesus says, especially during this phase here, there, there's some double meaning. So what's the underlying meaning here? I think the surface meaning is obviously, you said that, not me. You know, I'm not even going to respond to you. You said it, not me. But I think, I think there's also something there knowing the heart of Jesus that, that, that I think he, maybe he's saying, well, let me give you the opportunity to speak that not as a question, but as faith. Are, are you saying that I'm a king? Or is that in your mouth? Are you really wondering if I'm the king of the Jews? For one believes in his heart and confesses with his mouth. Is, is that in your mouth? Are you saying that? Am I the king of, Jews? What do, of the Jews? What do you say, Pilate? And then look at verses 6 through 15. Now at the feast, and that, that's Passover feast, he, speaking of Pilate, used, used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. Now I want to stop for a moment there. Uh, This is a custom that Pontius Pilate himself introduced. And the reason he introduced it was because he was ferociously hated as the governor. The Jews hated Pilate. Now, after Pilate came a man named Festus, and after Festus came a man named Felix. They were all governors of the same area, but they hated them too. But among all of them, Pilate was by far hated the most. He was a very brutal, brutal uh, uh, governor. And so Pilate, in response to that, because he he actually got in trouble with Rome because he was so brutal at times it stirred the people up and Rome was like, hey, you know, you just use some common sense here kind of thing. But, But Pilate, trying to make points with the Jews whose country he was occupying, he instituted a custom that at Passover he would honor their supreme religious feast by releasing any prisoner in the jail, no matter what he was charged with. And he would let the people choose whoever they wanted, and their representatives would come and select the prisoner. Now, think about that. That, That's an extraordinary offer, because the prisoner they choose would almost always be what? A, A political prisoner. So he is actually granting an imperial amnesty before the fact. Think about it. They they know that there is a chance that they can commit a crime, even even to murder a centurion the day before Passover, and they might get away with it because the people might set them free. That's a pretty powerful offer, isn't it? Okay, now, whom do they choose? Let's read verse 7. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there's a man called Barabbas. So he's a rebel and he's a murderer. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Now notice he's saying the same phrase, king of the Jews here. Uh, And so Pilate now he's turning the mockery back on the Jews. You know, Jesus has dumbfounded him. So he's replying to them sort of tongue in cheek. Hey, you want me to release your king? Is that what you want me to do? Uh, he thinks it's a big joke because he's, he is not impressed with this silent rabbi's threat to the imperial Roman government. He, he's not impressed at all. And in fact, he just does not see Jesus as a seditious rebel. That's why he wants to let him go. He doesn't see a threat to him. Even if you want to call him a king, I mean, he won't even talk to me. He's not going to cause the problems. And so he says, you want me to release your king to you? He's, he's mocking the Jews. And then verse 10, for he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. He, he knew 
that the religious leaders envied Jesus and they had him arrested for the sake of that. And, and, and what he was thinking was that the common will of the people would get, would get Jesus released over the envy of the religious chief priests. Now, why would he think that? Why would that be something on his mind? Well, remember, only a few days before, what major event had convinced Pilate that the people were on Jesus' side? Anybody? Anybody have guesses? Yes, both of you are saying the same thing, just a different way. The triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Uh, listen, right next door to the temple stood the Antonio Fortress, uh, the Roman garrison. And it was, it was built next door to the temple and it had one tower that was taller than the temple. Why is that? Well, it was so that they could look over into the temple. And, and I mean, the Romans would go up into that tower and they'd look down into the temple to make sure that they weren't like handing out bows and arrows, you know, and, and they weren't giving out submachine guns to anybody. You know, they want to make sure that there was nothing going on there. And so the Romans are, are, are looking uh, from the top of the tower, the Antonio Fortress, out through the eastern gate onto the road that leads to the Mount of Olives. And they see Jesus coming in this great procession and they and they. You know, whether they heard it from the tower, but, you know, the Roman guards were everywhere. And so they hear the, the priest saying to Jesus, make these people be quiet. And the people are singing and dancing and they're waving these palm branches and they're throwing their coats out on the road in front of Jesus. And, and the, it's obvious to the Romans that the people are 100% behind Jesus. Well, Pilate miscalculates the fickleness of the crowd. He says... To himself, just a few days ago, the people are 100% behind Jesus. They'll still be 100% behind Jesus, and they'll get Jesus off if I just give them the chance. He, he, he's, in a way, he, he just seems to be a little nervous about messing with Jesus. He senses that something is wrong here, and he just doesn't want to do this. So he appeals to the crowd, let me release your king to you. And they have... Problem is, they have now been infiltrated by rabble-rousers hired by the Pharisees and the chief priests. Look at 11, verse 11. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate is totally shocked by this. He is shocked by this. Pilate said to them, why? What, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. We don't care what he's charged with. We just want him dead. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. All right, let's stop there and let's talk about this for a moment. Please, please notice here some things that I think are important for us personally. Barabbas, the murderer, is released. Jesus, the Savior, is crucified. The king for the murderer. Death for life. The king is, is crucified as a criminal that the criminal may be elevated to royalty. What an amazing picture, a prefigurement of everything that Christ wants to do in our lives. We, we are made to sit together with Him in heavenly places. Why? Because like Barabbas, knowing that I'm a murderer by my conscience, 
I go free while the king is crucified as a murderer. I walk out as a king. I walk out as, as a child of a king. We are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. We have an inheritance of a king, incorruptible, undefiled, that never fades away. So, so this moment is a prefigurement, it's a picture, as it were, of what Jesus does in my life. It's the picture of what he does for every single one of us. Barabbas deserved, deserved to die, yet Jesus died in his place you deserve to, to die for your sins because the wages of sin is death, yet Jesus died in your place. I deserve to die because of my sin, yet Jesus died in my place. So Barabbas, as it were, is me. He's me. There's another provocative verse here, verse 15, we read it. It said, So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now, what is a scourging? What is a scourging? We, we don't see these things, but well, it's a horrible, horrible beating. The, the victim would be tied to a post and beaten with an instrument known as a cat of nine tails, which had leather, multiple leather straps that, that may have had iron or metal barbs through them. And they're beaten until their back is clawed open. I mean, to the point that Bone and sinews are exposed. Now, here's the thing, something I think is, I found interesting in my preparation. The Bible does not directly indicate how many lashes Jesus received. We, if you're like me, I grew up hearing people saying 39 lashes. He had 39 lashes. Well, here, here's, I want you to think about this. Jewish law indicated that a man should not receive more than 40 lashes. That's in De Deuteronomy 25.3. Forty stripes may be given him, but not more, lest if one should go on to beat him with more stripes than these, your brother might be de degraded, your brother, brother be degraded in your sight. Now the worry here in the Jewish law for, for going above 40 lashes is that your fellow Israelite will be degraded in your eyes. It was not a worry about whether it was going to kill him or not. That was not the concern. It, it, it's about the perception of the person in their brother's eyes, not their physical degradation. The idea being that one, a person flogged 40 plus times would be seen like a beast or an animal or a lesser than rather than a treasured fellow human being. That was the idea behind Deuteronomy 25.3. Now, what's interesting is, as is typical in rabbinic Judaism, they sort of built a fence around the Torah by making the law stricter than what was actually required in Scripture. We, we still do the same things. I've, I've taught this before that we like to build fences around things. You know, uh, I'll give you a, a silly example, uh, particularly with, you know, it was really uh, more uh, apparent in my generation when I was growing up. You know, so we know, the, for example, the Bible says that, a, that, you, that it's a sin to have sex before marriage. So, so what do we do? And the Pharisees and the rabbis over the centuries have done the same kind of thing. We build fences around that to make sure nobody gets even close to that. To the point where they keep building, getting built out and out and out to where when I was growing up, people were like, you can't go to a dance because that could lead to this and that could lead to this and that could lead to this. And next thing you know, you're having sex. Well, here's, by the way, here's a problem with that. The problem with that is when this person finally climbs that fence, when it's a man-made fence, and then they find out there's no consequences there, that there's no real sin there, 
they'll keep climbing those fences, but eventually they're going to come to the fence that God built. And because they've climbed all these man-made fences, they're going to climb that and they're going to receive the, the sorrow that comes from sin. So that's why building fences is really not a helpful thing, but that's what they did. They would build this. So they built a fence around this law to make it stricter than what was actually required in order to ensure that they didn't even come close to breaking the commandment. So in, in this case, what they did was they set the law to make the maximum number of lashes to be 39. And that way it ensured that the prohibition against giving more than 40 lashes would absolutely never be broken. And that's where the 39 lashes comes from because it's not even from Scripture. It's actually from rabbinic teaching that added to the Scripture. Therefore, 39 lashes then became the common punishment in Jewish law. You remember Jew Paul was subjected to Jew Jewish jurisprudence when he faced 39 lashes. But think about this. Jesus, on the other hand, was subjected to Roman law, not to Jewish law. Pilate was the one giving the orders here, and there's no reason to believe that the Romans would follow a Jewish tradition. Uh, so we don't know how many lashes he, he, he was given. It may have been even more than 39. We just don't know. We just know that he was, by the time the beating and everything was done, he was disfigured beyond even recognizing uh, him as a, as a person. So uh, scourging was the punishment ordered, by Jesus, ordered for Jesus by Pontius Pilate. He was to be flogged, but not killed in that way. His death was to be carried out by crucifixion after the scourging. Now, now why, why do that? I mean, if you're going to kill somebody, if you're going to nail them to a cross, if you're going to crucify them, why go through the trouble of scourging them? Well, it does a couple of things. The big reason is the first part of it, because the, the Romans discovered... Uh, as no other culture on earth before uh, them, they discovered the value of oppressive brutality. And when they paraded a prisoner through the streets to crucify him, they know that not everybody is going to go out and make the trip out to the hill to see the dead body hanging on the cross. Therefore, they wanted to make sure that the prisoner looked half dead when he walked through the streets before he ever got to the cross. They wanted that intimidation factor before they ever even got to the cross. Because if somebody didn't go out to see the cross, they wanted him to see that person bloodied and beaten before they ever got there. Attila the Hun once said, never waste an execution. He said, never take anybody behind your tent and cut his throat. Assemble all the chiefs and have him beheaded in front of all of them. And Rome believed the very same thing. They said, beat the prisoner within an inch of his life, make a bloody mess of him, because that's how we're going to control the masses. And so they used this oppressive brutality to help control the masses. And secondly, uh, and this one was only maybe a minor issue, but it, but it, it did shorten the time it took to die uh, in a crucifixion. It weakened them physically. The idea behind the scourging is that they would beat them to within an inch of their life. And, 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 and I, actually, I, I can't help but wonder, knowing that Pilate didn't want to crucify Jesus, I can't help but wonder if it was some sort of strange, twisted kindness in Pilate's mind to have him beaten and to have him scourged like that because he knew that if he did that, that he would die more quickly on the cross instead of being tortured for days on end. I, I, I don't know. I'm just saying that. I'm not saying that that was, and 
But that would be that would be twisted Roman compassion. That'd be about as compassion as you're going to get from a Roman ruler. So anyway, let, let's look at verses 16 through 20. It's really interesting stuff here. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And that, the, the Greek word there used is the praetorium. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him, Jesus, in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put, put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in, in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Now I want to stop there for a minute, and I'll tell you something very, very interesting. Um, there is a little Catholic convent in Jerusalem that for many, many years claimed that they were built over the site of the ancient praetorium, the governor's headquarters. And they, they claimed that they were built right over the place where Jesus was beaten. Well, back then, all the big shot archaeologists just laughed at them. They just, they just mocked them to scorn. They said, oh, it's just Roman Catholic tradition. You don't know what you're talking about. Well, finally, the sisters in that convent just got sick of all of that, and they invited these big shot archaeologists to come and dig in the basement of that convent. And they, they found, when they did that, they found the paving stones that would have been outside of the Roman garrison that was known as Gabbatha, and that is just the word that means pavement. Now, there are three ways that they knew that these were the paving stones uh, of the Romans. One way is that, is that the Romans shooed their horses. You know what I'm talking about? I'm not talking about shoe. I'm talking about they put the shoes on the horses' hooves. Uh, but the Israelites didn't. As a result of that, what happened was the, the Romans discovered that with those shoes, that their horse's hooves were very slick on wet pavement. So the Romans, very inventive, they figured out a way to, to deal with that. They put these little trenches in the tiles where they laid their pavement. They just cut little, little marks, little grooves in, on the top of them. And that way the water wouldn't pool on top and the horses wouldn't hydroplane. Well, when they dug up this pavement, it's the only pavement in all of Jerusalem that they have found that is trenched with Roman tile. So, so that's a very strong indicator that this is a place that's known as the pavement, Gabbatha. Second thing is that when they found that, they began to say, well, wait a minute, we need to rethink how we thought Jerusalem, ancient Jerusalem was laid out. And so be, it led them to dig uh, 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 in other places and, and rethink how they where they thought things were. And so they changed the way they always, what they'd always said about the Antonio Fortress. And they began to dig in a different direction because they thought it was one place and they thought Caiaphas' house was over in, or the garrison was over in that direction. But when they found out it was here, they said, well, that must mean that this, uh, this Antonio Fortress couldn't have been where we thought. It had to be over here. And that led into a point where they actually found the walls of the Antonio Fortress. Another indicator, this is the place. But the third thing, this is so powerful, so interesting. The third thing was that on the paving stones in a certain area there that they found, that they excavated, they found a gruesome, horrible game which had only been found in remote Roman outposts and garrisons 
in extended places of the Roman Empire. And they found, they found that game etched on the stones there in Jerusalem under this convent. And this game is evidently what the soldiers were playing in the next few verses that we just read. Because this game is like a gruesome, horrible, monstrous, brutal game of king for the day. They had squares with little signs on them. And they would, they would take a prisoner that had been sentenced to death and put him on the first square. And they would wrap him up as a king and put a crown on his head. And they would put a, give him a stick as a scepter. And they would all bow down to him. Does that sound a little bit like what was happening to Jesus? And then they would throw dice or whatever it was that they used to move the game along. And they would, they would bet on how long it would take to move him to the next square and then to the next square and then to the next square and all through the game until it finally came to the end of the last square. And the last square would be uh, where there was the coup d'etat and they would, they would uh, take all of that stuff away. They'd take the garments away and the, take away the crown, take away the scepter. Then they would take him out and kill him. And the prisoner goes through this whole gruesome game knowing that at the end he's going to die. He's a human pawn in a game played by demonized monsters. They're having fun with this guy who knows he's about to die. And that very game is etched on the floor of the Roman garrison in Jerusalem and you could go there today and see the signs and symbols to this day. Now, and when you do that, when you stand there staring at that game on the floor, I, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm, I haven't been there, but I want to go. But I'm sure it'll bring you to tears because you realize when you see that, you're not looking at an idea. But you're looking at the actual place where Christ, the Son of God, sat while Roman soldiers Drunken, debauched, evil, wicked men beat him, mocked him, moved him through this game, and then crucified him. They played with him like a toy and then took him out and killed him. You know, there, there are so many places in Israel, in Jerusalem, where we say, well, we think this is the place where this happened, or we're pretty sure this is at him, or tradition says this is where it was, but... When it comes to this moment in the life of Jesus, we know this is the place. You can go to Israel today and see the very place where Jesus was beaten and mocked before his crucifixion. And in verse 20, as we read it, they, they end the game because it says they took the robe and everything off of him, took him out and crucified him. And then in verses 21 and 22, we, we see a character introduced, which is a I'm not gonna, uh, the, the character that's introduced is not, is not the interesting part to me. Uh, it is, but, but that's not what I want to spend time on. Verse 21 says, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene is in northern Africa. Uh, uh, it says he was coming in from the country, the, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. So they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry the cross. And they brought him to the place of, of a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. Now, if, if you'll just take a moment and look at Romans 16, verse 13, I want to show you something. At the very end of the book of Romans, Paul is sending these greetings and he says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who's been a mother to me as well. 
Here's what's interesting. Most evangelical scholars, and I'm, I believe this too, believe that this Rufus in Romans is the son of Simon of Cyrene. And that, that Simon's son later become an, became an anointed servant of God in the early church. Now you say, well, it's just a mention of a name. That's pretty thin, thin evidence. No, it's not. And I'll tell you why. Think about it like this. When anybody is listed in the Bible, how they, do they identify that person in relation to his family? How do they do that? They say, this is Bob the what? Bob, the, the son of James, you know, like in Arkansas would be, this is John boy, the son of Bubba, right? <laughs> right. Something like that. Anyway, uh, they, but they do not say this is Bob, the father of Joe. That's not mentioned here. However, Mark goes to great lengths to specifically point out something to the, his readers to say that Simon of Cyrene was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Why? Because Mark is writing to whom? He's writing to Rome. And in Rome, as we know from Romans 16, 13, Rufus was well known. And so when they read this account of, in Rome, this story, this account of the gospel, and they said, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, all of a sudden they're like, oh, wow, that's where he came from. Now I get it. Now I understand this anointed choice, chosen man of God. Now I get it. Now I know why he loves Jesus so much. He was right there. Rufus, by the way, is also, it's Latin for red, which probably means that he was born, when he was born, he had red hair or a ruddy complexion. Uh, also is an indicator that even though he was from North Africa, Simon was probably not uh, uh, dark-skinned uh, because there were many white-skinned uh, and light-skinned people in northern Africa. Uh, uh, and so, but that's neither here nor there. Now then, verse 23. And they offered him wine, Jesus, mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Now, now this would be a pretty strong anesthetic. And the reason for it is to dull the pain. And that sounds really odd because we think about the brutality of the Roman uh, government. But they offered it to him not because they were suddenly compassionate. They weren't suddenly worried about cruel and inhumane punishment. That wasn't why they did it. What, what they want to do now is they want to make the crucifixion, crucifixion last long enough to make an impression on the victim. To last long enough to make an impression on the city, the people who are who are watching. So not, not just Jesus. This is for anybody that was crucified. So they, they beat this guy to within an inch of his life. They're about to nail him to, a cross, to cross boards and lift him up from the earth. And they're afraid that the shock and the exposure and the, the system being totally devastated, that will all overwhelm him. And so they want to give him an anesthetic so that the pain won't take him out too quickly. So... Uh, because we know trauma accelerates, uh, accelerates death. So they're, they're going to give him this, this anesthetic to slow the process of death a little bit. But Jesus refuses it. Just a minute. Jesus refuses it. Why? Well, first of all, he's not there for himself, but for us. And he's going to drink the cup to the very last dreg. He's not there just for the event itself, 
but for the fullest extent of the pain. He's not there to try to avoid the pain. This is, this is not simply an act of martyrdom just so he can say, well, look how, but it's, it's an act of heroic self-control. Secondly, he knows that he has to die that day. Therefore, he doesn't want the death delayed. We, we have as humans, we have a tendency to cling to life, don't we? I know people that are, that are ready to, to go to heaven. They're, they love the Lord, and yet I've seen those very people cling to life. That's just human nature. But Jesus here said, Let's, let it happen. I don't, I don't need that. I don't need that. Let it happen. Verse 24. The first four words of that verse, and they crucified him. That's a very simple little statement. And they crucified him. But we need to understand what that means. The Romans invented crucifixion, and, and it, it wasn't used in any culture before that time. And, and at one point in time, it was so, Romans used it so effectively and so often. That at one point in time, Josephus, a Jewish historian, he records that, that there was, at one time there were so many Christians crucified in Rome that a person could walk the length of the Appian Way in the shade. You could walk in the shade of these bodies hanging on the crosses. Now, here's, here's what you need to know. The Appian Way was 400 miles long. And you could walk the entire length of it without coming out from underneath these bodies. Thousands and thousands of them. Now, I don't want to, I'm not trying to horrify anybody, but, 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 but crucifixion could happen one of several ways. It, it did not, crucifixion didn't always imply nails. That was a horrible way of crucifying, but did not always include nails. You, you could also be crucified with ropes. They could tie you to a cross. Because to be crucified just meant simply that you were hung up on a cross until you died. That's all it meant. So to hang somebody up with ropes seems like it's more merciful, but the truth is it was actually more horrible because it took longer to die. A person... You know, being crucified typically did not die of wounds suffered during the crucifixion. They died of suffocation. Your, 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 your uh, chest cavity collapses down under your diaphragm. And the muscles began to spasm through your chest and your, your, and your shoulders and your arms and as you're hanging there. And, and it makes it where uh, your diaphragm cannot force your lungs open. You cannot get a breath in. And so because often crucifixion lasted for days and days and days. And meanwhile, they're hanging there. They're burned by the sun. They're exposed to the weather. But here's the thing. The Romans wanted to keep them alive because they wanted this to be as horrible as possible. So the Romans would often put footboards underneath their feet. And when a person was dying, they, when they would realize they're suffocating, I'm about to pass out because I can't get a breath, that just the natural instinct to preserve your life, they would push up themselves up on that footboard, take a breath or two real quickly, and, and then exhaustion and fatigue would take over and they'd collapse again. It sounds horrible to say this, but often people would come in the night when the Roman guards were gone and they would break the legs of their friends so that they couldn't push themselves up anymore. But then there were loving parents and people who just couldn't stand the thought of that. They would, they would come and actually feed people on these crosses and give them water and things like that because they just couldn't stand it when they were 
crying out and screaming out for water or for food. However, what it did was this whole process, this whole thing just made death. Even when they would feed them, they thought they were being compassionate. And, but what it really did was it caused the death to just go on and on and on and on. I don't mean to gross you out with this. I just want you to understand what the Lord did for us. I think it's important. The, the, the other, actually more merciful, albeit far more gruesome kind of crucifixion, was when they nailed him to the cross. And I, and I, I say more merciful is because it just the person would die more quickly. And that caused more bleeding and the, and the increased pain and shock of trauma often hastened death and and they would do that by, by nailing the nail between these two bones here at the base of your wrist and, and, the, and the two bones uh, in, in your ankles. That, and they didn't, you know, they didn't, they, they'd do it between those bones because they didn't want to break the bones. And they would cross your ankles over and nail between these two bones on each ankle. And, ankle, and they, were, they were just experts. They didn't just drive it in and smash the bones because they didn't want the bones broken. They wanted... To, I'm, I'm just telling you this. I, don't want, I want you to understand this. I don't mean it to be p too painful for you, but they wanted that prisoner when they, had to, when they pushed up for a breath, they wanted them pushing up on their own flesh. And so that prisoner would pull up and, or press up, and, and when they did, that flesh would tear. And as he pressed on that nail, as a natural instinct to try to get breath to, keep, to stay alive, the agony of that moment would cause them to drop, drop that much harder. It's just a horrifying horrifying thing now, i don't want to go on and on and on with this but i think it's important for us to understand because many christians have a sterilized view of the crucifixion i think maybe a lot of us were cured by that by watching the passion of the christ but i think it was even more gruesome than what they were able to show there but this is the most horrible thing imaginable then verse 24 and they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. Now just hold your place there and turn to Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, 18, where David wrote in this great messianic psalm, one of the most amazing chapters in all the book of Psalms. He writes in Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. How? in the world hundreds of years before christ was even born david under the inspiration of the holy spirit puts the this song to music and he gives it to the chief musician and he says have the singers sing this in the temple and the and the chief musician says we'll sing it your majesty but what does this mean and David says, well, when I was praying in the, in the power of God's spirit, I, I'm seeing something and I don't understand, but I believe it has something to do with the Messiah and there's some way in which people will actually gamble for his clothes. Can you imagine this? Hundreds of years before, hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ was born, David wrote this prophecy and then it's carried out with graphic detail. Now then, Mark 15, 25. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. It was the third hour when they crucified him. What is the time, as we reckon it, of the third hour? Anybody know? I heard, no, it's nine o'clock. 
9 o'clock in the morning. Their clock starts at 6 o'clock in the morning. So this is where you get, it gets really confusing when you talk about Jewish days and Jewish time. 9 o'clock in the morning. What else happened at 9 o'clock in the morning in the Bible? What great event happened at precisely the third hour as Jews reckon time and at 9 a.m. as we reckon time? Anybody, anybody have an idea? Well, I mean, that would have happened uh, at the crucifixion, but there's another event. Nope. That's it, Pentecost. Pentecost. Fifty days later, precisely at the same time, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit comes on the church. I just love the precision of the Bible. Then verses 26 through 32. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled that says he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. Now, wagging their heads, that means they're saying, you're crazy. That'd be like us doing this, going, Whoo, you know, somebody's a little loopy up there. But for them, they're, they're wagging their heads, saying, he's a crazy man. And, and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. And I mean, isn't it amazing that when God is loose in an event that he can cause people to say uh, what he can cause them to say when they don't even know what they're saying? Because they're mocking him about tearing down the temple and rebuilding it in three days when that's exactly what's happening. He, they go on, they say, uh, 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 Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel. They're, they're mocking him, but listen to their words. They're right. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. All right, just a couple things. What's happening here when Pilate writes up over the top, king of the Jews, he's having his last word with the Jews. He doesn't like them. He's angry with them. He feels manipulated and maneuvered to, into crucifying this man. And so he writes up over the head, the king of the Jews. And they come to him later, you know, the other uh, Gospels, they came and say, hey, don't write that. He's not our king. And he said, what I've written, I've written. And it was his way of just another dig at them saying, this is what's going on. And so, so it's not to get at Jesus, it's to get at the Jews. And then verse, verse 29 uh, talks about, we, we just mentioned it, the accusation that he, would, that he would destroy the temple and rebuild it. Well, here's the thing about that. Jesus never said, that he would destroy this temple and rebuild it. What did he say? Anybody have any idea? He said, if you destroy this temple. It, it, and the actual quote is, he just, Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. The implied subject of that sentence is, you destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it. So he, he, he says, if you destroy this temple, I will rebuild it three days later. And then he makes it clear that he was talking about his body. He was talking about himself. And now that's what exactly is happening. They're destroying the temple and he's going to rebuild it. Look at the next thing. They said, save yourself. Verse 30, save yourself. Come down from the cross. Oh, if only they had known what they were saying. 
If he had come down from the cross and saved himself, we would be doomed, all of us. The Pharisees said, let him come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Well, if Jesus had stepped down from the cross, first of all, they would not have believed. They hadn't believed anything he had, he had done yet. And I know they wouldn't have believed because they knew very clearly what happened in the temple when the, when the veil was torn in two. They knew that the, that the soldiers were lying when they said the disciples came and took the body. They knew all of these things, and yet they still refused to believe in spite of all the evidence right in front of them. Secondly, if he had stepped down from the cross... He, he, it would have plunged the entire universe into horrifying rebellion because the Godhead would have been divided as the Son was acting in opposition to the will of the Father. And we would all be doomed. We would all be damned. Their plea, come down from the cross and we'll believe, was actually asking for a religion that would divide God. In other words, it was a religion that was basically, fundamentally, the spirit of Antichrist. And you know, the last great temptation of Christ was to prove that he had power over the cross. Verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. A three-hour three eclipse, as it were. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani. Or some translations say, Eli, Eli. Which means, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Now look at verse 35, however. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. Now, why would they think he's calling for Elijah? Well, obviously, because Elijah's name begins with the same phrase. And Hebrew is, a, is an extremely confusing language when it's taken out of context. He's crying out in agony. His speech is not clear. His mouth may have been filled up with blood. He's hemorrhaging internally. So they can't tell what he's saying. And furthermore, on top of that, it, it doesn't even dawn on them. It doesn't even begin to cross their mind that he's calling on God. Why? Because they believe that you could not be a man of God and be crucified. He that hangs on a tree is what? Cursed. So it never even dawns on them that he's calling on God. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the most terrifying and horrifying. It's the most poignant uh, look at Jesus. We haven't seen him like this in the entire book of Mark. And suddenly we see him seemingly cosmically abandoned. But I believe what was happening was that Jesus was making a very clear statement. Because he's, he's quoting a verse from that same psalm that we read from earlier. Psalm 22, verse 1. That psalm starts out like this. Hundreds of years before Christ. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, any Jewish person that would hear that, would recognize that passage of Scripture. And I think one of the things that was happening there was that Jesus was simply making a statement, saying to anybody who was listening, anybody who could hear Him, He was saying, this is how it had to be. This is how it was foretold from the very beginning. There is no shortcut. There's no other way to get this done. This is how it had to happen. 
And the incarnate word of God, stripped of any semblance of power, authority, and divinity, hanging suspended between earth and heaven. He hung there in a God-forsaken moment because God refused to forsake us. Then verse 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. I love that it's from top to bottom. Man can't claim that he did that. This is the hands of God summoning through the riven veil of his son's flesh us into his presence. We no longer need to tremble outside. We are admitted into the very holy of holies. 39, and when the centurion who stood facing him saw that, he, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Amazing. Amazing. Right there is the first born-again convert, a Roman centurion who had just killed him. Astonishing. What, what, what in that moment caused that? Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then a short time later, he just cries out some unintelligible sound. It says that he just cried out. It was just a, or whatever it might have been. And then he dies. And the Roman says, son of God, why? Well, because Jesus lived like no man, he died like no man. And to look into the face of the crucified Savior is to see a Savior nonetheless. And faith arose in his heart and witnessed with the blood and he was born again. And the first born again convert was the Roman centurion who supervised Jesus' death. He, he presided over the crucifixion. It's one of the most amazing verses in the entire Bible. And here's what I want to say. If that man can be saved... Anybody can be saved, even the likes of us. Let me finish this chapter. I know we're running a little bit long. Verse 43. Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage uh, uh, and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, there's several things about the verse I want you to get. Uh, and we'll go quickly here. I, I admire Joseph of Arimathea greatly. We can learn some things, and I don't have time to go into them. He was a man who had a sense of authority himself. He, he used his wealth wisely to glorify God. Uh, he acted practically in the face of human need. He did what needed to be done. He went and asked for the body, provided a place for it to be buried, and he did, he did what was needed when it was needed. It says he was a respected member of the council, so he was a lawyer. He, and notice that it says that he took courage and went to Pilate. He was not intimidated by this Roman civil servant. He just walks right in and asks for the dead body of Jesus. And then verse 44, Pilate was surprised to hear that he, he should have already died. Why? Well, because he was only crucified Friday morning and he's dead before dark. That, that just doesn't happen with crucifixion. It takes, normally takes days and days and days. I mean, we've gone through all those gruesome details and he goes on, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. Is he really dead? He's dead. But what I like about that, maybe you missed it. Who testifies to Pilate of the death of Christ? The first born again convert. Hallelujah. He's already testifying. Verse 45, and when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to, to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud, excuse me, bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. 
Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. So Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, they took note of the location because they knew they had to go back. Why? Well, remember, it's getting dark. The Sabbath is about to start. They have to obey the law. They have to get to their house because the Sabbath is about to get, begin. And once the Sabbath begins, they were, the, the, the law told them that they weren't supposed to walk more than a mile from their house. So they had to get back in their house. They had to, to obey the law. And, and, then, and, and so they're going to go back home take, to, to obey the Sabbath. And then, and then they're going to come back when? Sunday, the day after the Sabbath. Because they can't come back Saturday night. Sabbath would end Friday, Saturday night at 6. But it's going to be dark then because it ends at sundown. So they don't, they, you know, there are no lights like what we have here. So they've got to wait for Sunday morning before they can get back to the grave. And so there, there's just no time to do what needs to be done now. So it's nearly dark. They have to get to the house. So Jesus is arrested on Thursday night. He's tried late in the evening. He spends Thursday night in Caiaphas's jail. He's crucified early Friday morning and dies in a matter of hours. It's incredible to Pilate. He's buried before sundown on Friday. That day, because he's entombed before sundown, as the Jews reckon time, any portion of a day is the full day. This is where we get confused because when we say, if we say something happened at 10 o'clock at night, we would say, we would say, well, it happened, you would say a little bit of the day. But to the Jewish mind, if it happened during that day, it was the day. So since he's entombed before sundown, therefore it's Friday. That's the first day. He spends the Sabbath in the tomb. Second day. He arises on the third day, Sunday, the first day of the week. He comes back and he rises from the dead on the third day. Now in two weeks, we'll finish this entire series on the immediate Jesus and we'll be talking about Christ the resurrected Lord. But, but tonight, we're just talking about the cross. So he, he spent three days in the tomb then, but we're, we're going to leave him in the, on the cross and in the grave for two weeks. <laughs> um, but tonight, however, I want to close by just reminding you of the lyrics of one of the most beloved old songs of the church, one that I've always loved. I remember even as a child, a 12-year-old child, singing this song in church. And I just remember weeping, singing this song before I really fully understood, but there was just something about it. Because I want, I want to, in closing, just turn your attention to the cross. In fact, this is so appropriate leading into Thanksgiving. Because think about what more... What could we be more thankful for than the cross? But the old song says, On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners, beginning with the centurion who crucified him all the way to me, was slain. Oh, that old rugged cross so despised by the world has a wondrous attraction for me. For the dear Lamb of God left His glory above to bear it to dark Calvary. And that old rugged cross stained with blood so divine, a wondrous beauty I see. For twas on that old cross Jesus suffered and died to pardon and sanctify me. 
to that old rugged cross I will ever be true. It's shame and reproach gladly bear like Simon the Cyrene. I'll carry it right through the streets. Then he'll call me someday to my home far away where his glory, no longer the crucified Christ, but the reigning Lord, where his glory forever I'll share. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. What does that mean? At his feet. All the things I've accomplished, all the good things that I've had in my life, I lay them all at his feet till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to that old rugged cross and exchange it one day for a crown. Bow your head. Father, we are in awe of the plan of God. And Jesus, we're in awe of the kind of love it takes for you to willingly go through the things that you went through, knowing that you could at any moment call a legion of angels. You could have snapped your finger. You could have said the word and all of those people would be wiped out. And yet we would all be lost and we would be damned forever. And yet in spite of that, the love held you to the cross. The, the, the joy that was set before you, knowing the salvation of people like me was going to be one there at the cross that kept you there. And Lord, we are so thankful. Let us not take the cross lightly. And Lord, I pray as we head into this season of, of, of Thanksgiving, I pray, God, that we would remember the greatest thing for which we should be thankful is the cross. We give you praise in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.